Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, please come and speak a word to your church this morning. Those gathered here in this small number in this sanctuary and those who've gathered at home, Lord, wherever they may be. Lord, come and through the power of your Spirit, open up the gospel to us. Lord, be with me the preacher of your word. Grant me freedom in your spirit. Grant me a tongue to preach and a heart to love you. And Lord, may that be communicated to your flock. Give us all listening ears and open hearts. We want to hear the voice of the shepherd call us by name today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, today, today in the church calendar, this fourth Sunday of Easter is traditionally known as Good Shepherd Sunday. This is Jaeger's, my German shepherd's, favorite Sunday of the year because he always gets told he's a good shepherd. You're a good shepherd. Now seriously, this is Good Shepherd Sunday because every fourth Sunday of Easter, we get a gospel reading from John chapter 10, and that is Jesus' Good Shepherd Discourse. But the problem for us this year in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, the gospel reading we just heard, the problem for us is that Jesus does not say in those 10 verses, I am the good shepherd. He never says that there. He makes an allusion to shepherds, but he doesn't use that phrase. That comes in verse 11. And while Jesus as shepherd is critical to what we have just heard read, the I am statement, and John's gospel is famous for those seven I am statements of Jesus. They're very important. The emphatic I am statement, the emphatic statement of Jesus where he says I am, and this section occurs when he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. But door Sunday or gate Sunday just doesn't sound as good as Good Shepherd Sunday, and so we're stuck with Good Shepherd Sunday for today. But the first thing that we need to recognize in this passage, in this discourse from Jesus, this teaching from Jesus, is that it does not happen in isolation. Rather, Jesus is referring to what has just happened previously in John chapter 9. You know, John chapter 9 comes before John chapter 10. And this discourse is a reference to that passage. So in order to understand John chapter 10, we have to go back and review very quickly the events in John chapter 9. And as you will recall, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who had been born blind, blind from birth. So Jesus spits on the ground, and he makes mud and smears it on this guy's eyes. I'm not sure if I agree with that medical technique, but Jesus is the great physician, so he can do what he wants to. He smears it on the blind man's eyes, and he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the blind man immediately obeys. What does he do? He immediately obeys Jesus, whom he cannot obviously see. He hears a voice. He feels the mud put on his eyes. He hears a command, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does that, and he comes back seeing. Now, this amazing event causes a lot of confusion among the blind man's neighbors. So, in order to get the story straight, they trundle him off to the Pharisees, so that, they, and so that they can kind of figure out what's going on. And the Pharisees get right ornery. 
get right ornery with this man because Jesus has healed the blind man on what day? On the Sabbath day. Oh, my goodness gracious. And the, so there is a lengthy back and forth uh, where, between the Pharisees and then the man's parents and then the Pharisees and the man who'd been blind but now can see. And then finally they, the Pharisees just call him a bunch of bad names and kick him out of the synagogue. He is basically expelled. This is critical. He's basically expelled from the Jewish community by order of the religious establishment. This is extreme enforced social distancing. And so after he gets, gets kicked out of church and is shunned by the community, what happens? Well, Jesus goes and he finds this guy. He seeks him out. And then out of the blue, this non-sequitur question is asked by Jesus to the man who was born blind. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Of all the things Jesus could have said, he could have said, hey, what's it like to see now? You know, what, what do you think about these colors? You know, did you have a hard time with the Pharisees? No, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man who was once blind says, I don't know who that is. And Jesus says to him, and you're going to love this, he says to, them, to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped Jesus. So that's cool, right? Well, the Pharisees didn't think so, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. So immediately after that experience, Jesus says something that sounds just random. I mean, this is a directly connected to the, what, the events that have just occurred, but what Jesus says next sounds random. It sounds non sequitur. So that's where we are in John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. What in the world has that to do with, with healing a blind man? Well, Jesus is directly responding to the antagonism and the unbelief of the Pharisees directed towards himself. Jesus is interpreting what has just occurred in John chapter 9. So the Pharisees' exclusion of the blind man <coughs> flows from their animosity and unbelief towards Jesus. And that, here's the critical point, and that rejection of Jesus reveals this, okay? This is how, it this is how John 9 connects with John 10. That rejection of Jesus reveals that these are not true shepherds of Israel. They are thieves and robbers. They are sheep stealers. And Jesus more than likely is thinking about the many Old Testament passages that talk about the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel 34 comes to mind. There are passages in Isaiah that come to mind. There's passages in Zechariah that come to mind. But I think he's probably thinking about passages like Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4, where God excoriates the religious leaders of Israel for exactly the kind of thing that these Pharisees have just done to the man who was born blind. Listen to what that says, Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Jesus, uh, the, the scripture says in Jeremiah, Woe to you, woe to the shepherds who destroy, listen, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter 
the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. Now listen to what the Lord says. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. What did the Pharisees do to the blind man? They drove him out of the synagogue. You've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. So the first thing we recognize here is that by rejecting Jesus, by not believing in Jesus, by not entering through the door of Jesus, the religious leadership are by definition not true shepherds, but thieves and robbers. Here's how religious leaders, and since John is pinning his gospel for the Christian community, specifically Christian religious leaders, Christian leaders, here's how you can determine if you're a Christian leader. This is directed to people like me who wear the funny clothes on Sunday morning. Here's how you can determine if you have become a thief and a robber and not a true shepherd. Are you ready? When Jesus Christ becomes an obstacle to your religious leadership, when Jesus Christ becomes an obstacle to your religious leadership, your religious agenda, as with the Pharisees in John 9, you are not a true shepherd, you are a sheep rustler. That's how you can tell. Is Jesus something I have to get around? Is he an obstacle for my religious agenda? And this can happen in re to revisionist pastors who twist and ignore the clear teaching of Jesus in order to promote an agenda rooted in the sexual revolution or critical theory or the culture of death. Or this can happen to evangelical ministers who preach a false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity and avoid the cross. Or this can happen to just good old small town traditional priests who make an idol out of comfort and predictability and begin to see Jesus as a feared agent of chaos who just might want to take back the lordship of the local church. Ouch. You know, good Bishop J.C. Ryle said this. I love this. I, it's a kind of a lengthy quote, but it was so good I wanted you to hear this. And it directly speaks to this passage. Ordination, he writes, is no proof whatever that a man is fit to show others the way to heaven. He may have been regularly set apart by those who have authority to call ministers, and yet all his life may never come near the door, and at last may die nothing better than a thief and a robber. The true sense of the door, writes Ryle, must be sought in our Lord's own interpretation. It is Christ himself who is the door. The true shepherd of souls is he who enters the ministry with a single eye to Christ, desiring to glorify Christ, doing all in the strength of Christ, preaching Christ's doctrine, walking in Christ's steps, and laboring to bring men and women to Christ. The false shepherd of souls is he who enters the ministerial office with little, no, little or no thought about Christ from worldly and self-exalting motives. 
but from no desire to exalt Jesus and the great salvation that is in him. Christ, in one word, is the grand touchstone of the minister of religion. The man who makes much of Christ is a pastor after God's own heart, whom God delights to honor. The minister who makes little of Christ is one of whom God reg regards as an imposter, as one who has climbed up to his holy office, not by the door, but by some other way. Now that's a long quote, but let me give you an example of what that's about and how it directly relates to this passage. Many years ago, uh, back in an earlier, I think it was the Pleistocene, it might have been the, some other period of ge geological time, when I was a, uh, a preceptor, a, that is sort of a, a teaching assistant on, on, uh, on steroids in a seminary, a well-known seminary, uh, there I was precepting, I was instructing a homiletics course, a course about preaching. And there was a young man in that course who was really purdy. P-U-R-D-Y. He was plum purdy. He was a good-looking young man. He, was, uh, he w had uh, traveled extensively. He had done very uh, laudable relief work in Honduras. Um, and, and, and everybody loved him, especially the females in the class loved him, thought he was wonderful. And so uh, he glided into the pulpit during one of those preaching labs, one of those preaching exercises, and he preached an entire sermon in which he said a lot of very nice things, a lot of good things, nothing wrong with what he said, except it had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. He did not, he was preaching a gospel text, and he managed to get all the way through the sermon without talking about Jesus even once. He never even said the name. That is an imposter. I don't care how good-looking you are. I don't care how eloquent you are. I don't care how well-traveled you are or how noble your intentions or how much social work you've done. If you can't glorify Jesus in a sermon, you are not a shepherd of the sheep. You're a sheep rustler. And that's what we need to be aware of. And that's what Jesus is saying about the so-called shepherds of Israel who have kicked this man out of the synagogue precisely because they reject the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus shifts from in, uh, identifying himself as the door to identifying with shepherd Im imagery to contrast himself to those false leaders who expelled the blind man. And then Jesus says this, this is John <clears throat> chapter 10, verses one, uh, 2 through 5, but he who enters by the door, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep Hear his voice. This is, folks, you got to listen to this part, okay? The sheep hears his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So what is Jesus stressing here? That he calls his sheep by name. They hear his voice. They recognize him. They know he's not a stranger. What is Jesus stressing here? It is the intimacy of relationship between shepherd and sheep. Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice. How does that relate to that passage about the man born blind? Well, the man, the blind man in John chapter 9, verse 7 can't see Jesus, duh. 
That's how, you know, so in your job description, to be the blind man in John chapter 9, you can't see. So John, so this man doesn't see Jesus, but what? He hears his voice and obeys Jesus even before he sees him. He is hearing the voice of the shepherd. He is one of Jesus' sheep. And then Jesus, and then Jesus says, he calls his own sheep by name. And I just love that. It makes me think about Isaiah, where God so intimately loves his people. He says, see, I have graven you, graven your names on the palms of my hands. And we know what that graven name on his hands looks like. It looks like nails went through it. The sheep hear his voice. The sheep are called, he calls his own sheep by name. You know, being called by name has a powerful and special significance in John's gospel. You know, we're right now in what Christians call the great 50 days of Easter. So that means you are not allowed to stop partying about the resurrection for 50 days. Uh, you're going to just have to keep on keeping on with all of that celebrating. Even if you're doing it locked down at home, you need to find a way to celebrate. 50 days of Easter. So this 50 day of Easter period especially reminds me of that encounter with Mary Magdalene in the garden. Remember that? It's in John chapter 20 on the day of resurrection. While it was still dark, Mary goes to the garden. She goes to see the tomb. And what happens in that passage? Well, Mary Magdalene meets the risen Jesus. And she says, hey, Jesus. No, she doesn't. She doesn't do that. She doesn't recognize Jesus, and at first she thinks he's the gardener. <clears throat> and then what happens? Well, if you were to go to John chapter 20, verse 15 and 16, this is what you would read. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, she heard her, voice, heard her name called by the shepherd, and she recognized him, and she worshipped him. She recognizes the shepherd when he calls her by name. Calling by name also reminds me of what will happen in just the next chapter of John, uh, John 11. Lazarus, Lazarus, the story about the raising of Lazarus. In John 11, Jesus' friend, and by the way, I want you to know that uh, you have to be careful when you write notes for sermons because where it says Jesus' friend on my page right here, I had originally written Jesus fried Lazarus. Not Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Well, no, Jesus did not fry Lazarus. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, is he's dead. He's been buried for four days. But then Jesus arrives at Lazarus' tomb. And then what happens? Well, John, 11, John chapter 11, verse 43. This is what he says. It says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. 
Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, who is beyond the wall of death itself, hears the voice of the shepherd call his name, and even death can't keep him from following Jesus. He followed him right out of the tomb and into a new life. Mary in the garden and Lazarus in the tomb. What are those stories about? They are both about Jesus bringing life out of death. Mary went to see dead Jesus. Well, no, there's live Jesus right there. Jesus went to uh, Lazarus' tomb, broke up the weeping and mourning with a resurrection. That, listen, that is the, that's the, the very illustration of John 10.10. 10. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the abundant life. It's life that is so powerful that it conquers death. And it only comes through Jesus Christ. It is a life, an abundant life of fellowship with Jesus in the here and now and life of love and intimate fellowship with Jesus after the resurrection. And where is Lazarus, by the way? <clears throat> the very next time we see Lazarus in, in John is in John chapter 12. And what does it say? Well, they, uh, Mary and Martha were given a party for Jesus in their home. And where is Lazarus? It says that he was reclining, he was reclining with Jesus at the table. This is intimate fellowship with Jesus. When the shepherd calls you by name, he calls you to intimate, loving fellowship with himself, and we can recline with him at his table again and fellowship with him here. He gives you a meal to eat with him and just lay on his bosom. That's wonderful. Wonderful. And then Jesus shifts the imagery again after that passage in uh, John chapter 10. He goes back to the door image. John chapter 10, verse 7. Listen to what it says. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and here's the I am statement. Here it is. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, abundance. Think about that shepherd psalm we offered, Psalm 23. Green pastures and still waters. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. As in all of John's gospel, this is very important, y'all. As in John, all of John's gospel, Jesus is simultaneously, listen, universalistic. You know, what does he say? You know, God so loved the world. What's that? That's everybody and everything. All right. So he's simultaneously universalistic and exclusive. And we, we being who we are, just can't hold those two things together. You know, God's offer of eternal life, of salvation, of abundant life is for, Jesus said, anyone. So it's for all. But the only way to receive that universally offered gift is through Jesus. 
And many of us, you know, we love those inclusive bits, but we get the heebie-jeebies. That's a technical theological term, heebie-jeebies. You have to go to a seminary to find out about that. We get the heebie-jeebies over the exclusive bits. In fact, in my preparation for this sermon, I, I scoured a lot of commentaries. Let's see what everybody else was thinking about this. But as I was putting down what I was thinking about this, and what I felt the Lord was saying to me, but in my sermon preparation for, this, uh, for today, it was painful, painful to see revisionist scholars do contortions, twist themselves up into knots to avoid the plain literary meaning of this ta uh, text. Oh, it doesn't mean that you can only be saved by going through the door. When Jesus just said that. Here's the deal. Now listen, you need to hear this. If you think Jesus is all about God's radical hospitality, about God's radical welcome of all, if you think Jesus is about God's scandalous inclusivity, you are exactly right. You are exactly right. But you are only exactly half right. The same welcoming and radically inclusive God who came among us in Jesus Christ, is also exclusive. We call that a paradox. In other words, he claims to be the exclusive means of granting us the life that is truly life. It's offered to all, but he's the only way you can get it. His exclusive claims mean that we can enter the sheepfold, listen, this is so important, only on his terms. Used to be people had the, 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 the sort of preset, the factory presets were like, oh, God is mightier and more knowledgeable than me. But now we kind of think we're going par with God and we might be a little more morally superior than God. But what we see here is that Jesus says that he is the gate and we enter the sheepfold, therefore he's the door. We enter on whose terms? His terms, not on my terms. I mean, just think about the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Have you noticed that all the illustrations are basically John? Yes, that's right. It's like the Bible kind of explains the Bible. So think about that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. She, as a Samaritan, she was a part of a despised people group, a despised ethnic, uh, an excluded ethnic group. Jesus also, or excuse me, John, in his, as he writes this gospel, gives us clues, and in fact he tells us outright, that she has led what would be considered an immoral life, even by Samaritan standards. So you have a despised people group, someone who's living way outside, the uh, coloring way outside the lines of even Samaritan morality. But Jesus encounters her at the well, and he welcomes her into his sheepfold in a way that is genuinely, scandalously inclusive. He's inviting a sinful woman of a despised ethnic group to become one of his followers. If you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. And she seems to take him up on his promise. She gives, she gets, 
She receives the living water. She receives the abundant life. She goes running back to the village and say, says, come and see the man that told me everything I ever did. This guy is amazing. I think he's the Messiah. But she entered into that new life not through her own religious traditions, but through Israel's, through Israel's, not through some Samaritan version, but through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. Not on her own terms, but on Jesus' terms. You will go in and out and find pasture. Whoever enters by the gate will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The blind man is saved by entering the gate, by believing in, it says, who, who is the Son of Man so that I can believe some Son of Man that I can believe him? You have seen him, and the one who's talking to you is he. And he 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 said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He believed and he worshipped. The salvation that this blind man found was salvation by being physically healed. The Greek word to save is the same word as the Greek word to heal. He's saved from the isolation that his condition brought on. He's saved from literal, unending darkness. And he is restored. He is saved and restored to genuine community. And he's saved and restored to intimate relationship with Jesus. And we too are saved by entering the only door that leads to the life that is truly life. We can receive healing. We can be saved from the isolation. And Lord knows we're starting to feel that a little bit right now. Saved from darkness, restored to, given the gift of a genuine community, and most precious of all, intimate table fellowship, being in the Lord's presence at His table here, and just from day to day as He, our shepherd, walks before us, and we abide in Him. So brothers and sisters, friends here and friends who are watching, if you listen closely, I want you to ask yourself, do I hear my name being called by the shepherd? And as he calls you, won't you get up and follow him? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you at